There's a joint military installation where I've been stationed a few times. And on it, there's this stretch of sidewalk that cuts across a small grassy area and runs from a parking lot to a cluster of office buildings occupied by Navy and Air Force units. When I was a young airman stationed at this installation about 12 years ago, I remember being wary of the Navy chiefs, the Air Force officers, and senior NCOs inside that grassy area who would bark at you if you stepped off the sidewalk to cut across the grass. This was a very serious matter to them. You keep off the grass. I was stationed at that same installation just a few years later. One day on my way into work, I came to the stretch of sidewalk and noticed that something was drastically different. The sidewalk wasn't flanked by healthy, well-manicured grass. Instead, alongside it ran footpaths thick with mud. Now the concrete sidewalk was broken and sunken into the ground, and when it rained, it had started to collect a pool of water. During the rainy months, I came to find out, when there wasn't time for it to dry out, this route became a semi-permanent water feature, getting as many as four inches deep at times, maybe. The surrounding grass had lost soil structure after being repeatedly inundated with water and walked over by people trying to circumvent the natural hazard. And those chiefs, Air Force officers and senior NCOs, who would have gleefully bellowed at a young airman to keep the hell off the grass, they were right there alongside us, picking out the less muddy trails. At points, we'd daintily pick out each step on our tiptoes, trying not to get our boots or dress shoes too muddy. Over the course of just a few years, we had gone from a professional force of the U.S. military's finest to tiptoeing through the muddy grass. I thought back to just a few years before, and I thought it was fascinating how culture had shifted so drastically in this singular space, all because of a prolonged losing battle with predictable geological forces. The deterioration of systems and their surrounding environments is a phenomenon so reliable that its basis in physics, entropy, has been described by theoretical physicists as the originating mechanism for the direction of time. It is inevitable that the straight paths we lay today will bend, as over time the earth beneath them flows like a slow liquid, and they will break if the paths we laid were too brittle. Similarly, the systems, the programs, policies, and processes that our organizations establish will succumb to the pull of a different type of gravity. They will lose structure and function as distance grows from the original context, and even while maintained, they'll lose their tailored fit as the environment morphs around them, and as unanticipated users and contexts emerge. And failing to take these natural forces into account doesn't just result in our systems losing effectiveness. At a certain point, they'll begin to cause damage to the surrounding environment. They can nudge us into new, harmful behaviors that can become habits. They can ultimately, ultimately undermine the value they were intended to create. See, the concrete sidewalk didn't just stop providing a dry walkway. It now effectively retains a pool of water for those who stay on the path to walk through. Neglected, our creations will turn against us. Maturation into obstruction is a phase in the natural life cycle of systems and structures. It is as sure a thing as the fact that an aircraft without lift will fall to the earth. 
So these laws of nature have implications for how organizations should plan, organize, and deploy systems and structures we hope to rely on in the future. Just as the designers and operators of an aircraft should account for the fact that gravity is going to have some opinions about their vehicles staying in the air. Throughout my 14 years in the Air Force, I've seen many demonstrations of these dynamics and systems, programs, and policies. And I'll give you one example. The Air Force has a set of policies intended to prevent Air Force families with medically involved family members from being stationed somewhere where appropriate care isn't available. It's part of a larger well-meaning and often beneficial program called the Exceptional Family Member Program that just wants to ensure that those with more advanced needs are properly cared for in the face of our often turbulent military lifestyle. I can tell you there have been a number of times, however, when these policies, rather than being helpful, caused my family greater distress. I fought for a period of time to not be separated from my family for a three-year assignment. I fought to not be separated from my severely disabled daughter, who at the time was on hospice, and we thought she was going to die. Because the exceptional family member program decided that the services she needed weren't available at the gaining station, and another rigid set of policies said that I absolutely had to go anyways on a now unaccompanied three-year assignment. And we in our immediate leadership, we thought this didn't really make any sense. We thought that there should be some way for me to stay with my family without ending my career, that I should be able to cancel this assignment or find an alternative but there wasn't anything. My first sergeant at the time convened a team of first sergeants from other units to dig through volumes of policy that we thought ought to have some solution. But they didn't. To solve this problem, we had to make enough noise that we reached the ear of those high enough above the level of execution. And I'll tell you that at a certain level in the hierarchy, people don't appear to feel as restricted by policy down here on the ground, we're held down by it. But once my wing commander and command chief got word of my situation, they immediately reached out to the Air Force Personnel Center and said, we've got a problem. And their approach wasn't, is there a policy that would allow us to keep this family together? It was, let's keep this family together. But think about it, a policy intended to ensure that my daughter was properly cared for was almost the reason she had to live without a father for three years. It is not uncommon in a large bureaucracy like the U.S. military to encounter policies and processes that are an obstacle to the value they intended to create, doing quite the opposite of their intended purpose, not unlike a concrete walkway that holds water for pedestrians to wade through. Because no policy or process can avoid the challenge of unanticipated contexts and users, the environment changes, the people change. The way we do things changes, and sometimes this requires interdiction, because systems left to navigate these changes blindly will eventually violate their original intent. This is the complexity of the human domain. The fact that something works today only tells us that this thing was well designed for today's context, and we cannot be sure about tomorrow. So a certain type of agility is in order. So how do we inoculate against these effects? Three things. 
The first is to design on behalf of value. And this is just good design practice. It's the basis for agile development, design thinking, and all that good stuff. Start using frameworks that keep the value we're trying to create at the forefront of the conversation. It sounds simple, but we're not naturally very good at keeping value in mind as we create things, or even as we make decisions. What happens often is that we pick a particular solution for its anticipated value, and then we get caught up in the mechanisms of bringing specifications into being, bringing to life a list of requirements, and somewhere in the mix we lose sight of value. So we need frameworks and facilitators to help us maintain focus. The next step is to execute on behalf of values. When we change the way we design, the resulting systems and products might work well for all anticipated contexts and users. But as we've seen, those aren't the only conditions that our product will face. To account for this, execution itself has to be driven and informed by the value to be created and the underlying values of our institution. A good example of execution on behalf of values is the tenet of first do no harm in the medical professions. What this does is it draws a clear set of guardrails within which practitioners can navigate an unfamiliar context and they can take decisive action without having to worry that those actions might undermine the point of their profession. It reduces uncertainty in these unfamiliar contexts when you let values drive execution. You can see values-based execution in the military constructs of Mission Command and General Stanley McChrystal's Team of Teams framework, which ask that we provide commanders intent, establish an aligning narrative, essentially that we instill the value to be created by a set of actions and the underlying values of our organization, and then push autonomy to the level of execution so that those on the ground can adapt to emerging and unanticipated conditions and contexts. We would have benefited enormously from a value like first do no harm in those executing the policies of the Exceptional Family Member Program, who appeared to feel that their service belonged to the existing design of policy. And it was the fact that our wing leadership felt in service to a set of values that informed their decision to interdict. And interdiction is the third and probably most important piece of this. And let me describe for you what happens without interdiction on behalf of values. And that is the process of values atrophy. We start off designing with a set of values in mind. We design for all anticipated contexts and users, and then at a certain point, unanticipated factors mean that this design will fail to create the intended value or enforce the values of our organization. And if we're acting in service to design and we execute anyways, we've decided to adjust our values because one of these two things is going to be malleable. Values or design. And when we make design static, our values adjust. And over time, as we adjust values, it becomes easier to just keep doing rinse and repeat. We habituate. And before you know it, we're trampling over muddy grass. 
culture degrades when we let this happen. Our values atrophy. Our mission suffers. Our people suffer. And this is the natural tendency of systems, especially within bureaucracies. So we need to be capable of course correction when we observe through values-based execution that a design is failing to create value or support our values. We should execute based on values, and if design fails to enforce those values at any point, if it fails to create the intended value, we interdict and we revisit design. And when we do this, every execution becomes another test of the design of our process, policy, or program. So what do people need in order to interdict? The first thing they need is purpose. They need to know why they're doing what they're doing. They need to know and internalize the underlying values that processes and products are in service of. Without that, they have no way of knowing when interdiction is even required. The next thing they need is relevance. Those executing need to feel that their perspective at the level of execution is relevant. At the level of execution, they're not just there to pull a lever, but to facilitate, but to facilitate a value. All those at the point of execution are consequential. They are the last line of defense against design context, misalignment, and values atrophy. And they have to feel that interdiction in service of values is worth the friction that they will face from those trying to defend the system, from those acting in service to design. And the third thing they need is empowerment. At the level of execution, individuals need to be empowered to bring processes to a halt and be heard, much like operators in the Toyota production system are empowered to bring the whole assembly line to a halt when errors are detected. Hierarchy has to flatten when values are being threatened. And a leadership structure and culture that prevents or inhibits values-based execution and values-based interdiction is itself poorly designed and perhaps it's time that we interdict for several years, I watched that sidewalk pond fill with water and dry out again, over and over. And at the same time, I watched this silly small artifact of military discipline and culture degrade and fail to recover. It took three years of fighting the policies of the Exceptional Family Member Program and those who felt their duty was to policy and design until we finally reached the ear of those who felt their duty was to a set of values I see clear indications in many of my peers and leaders that walking the muddy paths around flaws in programs and policies has eroded our values. I heard from many people that something like the pointless sacrifice being demanded of my family was just a normal and expected part of military life. We say things like embrace the suck because we think that arbitrary misery is just the price of admission. I'm here to say that we don't have to be servants to the systems that we created. We created them. And the systems created for us by others are not infallible. They will fail. And only we right now, on the ground, know whether that has already happened. So let's not make innovation the exceptional pursuit of those elite teams above or outside the system at a distance from the level of execution. Let's make it a habit driven by those on the ground who can actually tell us whether this train is still on the tracks 
Our innovation labs and software factories can churn out a steady stream of solutions making us feel innovative AF, while a culture that inhibits values-based execution and interdiction ensures that we are not. It's only through an inclusive, ground-level focus on leadership and culture that we can truly move at the speed of relevance without sliding continuously backwards, while keeping the things that matter most, our values, clearly in focus. Thank you.